So when he called you, what did he say? He said that he was running from the police and he was saying um, he thought he was going to go to jail. Uh, at the beginning, it was just him. It was pretty blurry and like pixely because the service wasn't that great, but it was just his face and he's like walking fast, so it's like moving. And then um, it paused. I'm guessing his phone was like down at his near his waist because it started sounding like he was running and I could hear him saying, they're shooting at me. And then um, it unpaused and it was like facing the ground and it like lifted up and there was like an officer I can like literally picture what it looked like. There's like an officer standing there with his like gun pointed and then some like plants and stuff like that. Um, I heard the gunshots at that point. I didn't hear any before, but kind of like right when he pointed the phone is when I heard the gunshots. It was like before it paused, I did see him like kind of like fall backwards like with the phone. And then, then it was paused until the cops came over and unpaused it. And you saw this police officer with a gun pointed mm -hmm. on the face turn? Yeah. I was like literally just like screaming at the top of my lungs because I had heard them say he's not breathing. So I was like mostly just screaming. So I'm going to just read you a little bit of what the sheriff said happened. Mm -hmm. And then I would love to get your reaction based on what you witnessed yeah. on FaceTime. Here's what the sheriff said, the Clark County Sheriff. A foot pursuit ensued where deputies from the Clark County Sheriff's Office were chasing a man with a firearm. The information I have is that upon entering the parking lot of the bank, the man reportedly fired his weapon at the deputies. The deputies returned fire and the subject was tragically killed. It is my understanding that the man's firearm was observed at the scene. What do you think of that statement, that first thing um, that they tell the public? Yeah, I like knew that he didn't fire at them. And even still like to this day, people still are like, oh, well he shot at police. And like that never happened. So I feel like it just, it made people like not really care about the story because they're like, oh, well, he shot at police. So like there's there's nothing else to the story when it really didn't even happen. Once the public believes a suspect shot at the police, then the attitude is, well, then of course police shot back. Somebody, I heard somebody once say this, like, you know, you you already killed them and then you're trying to basically like kill their, their credibility and kill their character. Do you feel like this was a an assassination followed by a character assassination. Uh, yeah. They definitely tried to make him out to be like the worst possible person they could. This is Why Don't We Know, the podcast about data deserts and missing information and the real life consequences of government secrecy. I'm Sarah Gannam, and in this episode, we are exploring the problem with police say. In my seven years covering the police beat, there's a phrase that I wrote hundreds, if not thousands of times. Police say that the suspect was fighting. Police say they responded to a Police say he was involved. Police say McCracken. 
Now, early on in this investigation, deputies did say that they believed that Peterson had fired his weapon. In the case of 22-year-old Kevin Peterson Jr., for example. The investigation revealed that there was no evidence that Peterson fired his weapon here at U.S. Bank. The sheriff's initial statement. The man reported to be fired his weapon at the deputies. Nearby surveillance footage proved that was not true. There are two videos, and they confirm that Kevin never pointed a gun at the deputies. That's the Peterson family attorney, a former prosecutor named Mark Lindquist. Let me be clear about this. There are two videos, and they confirm that Kevin never pointed anything at the deputies before the first volley of shots. He did, it appears, raise his cell phone toward the deputies before the second volley of shots. Peterson's girlfriend, Olivia Selto, the mother of his baby, was on that phone on a FaceTime call when he was shot. I worry about like my daughter when she is old enough to look into it herself. Since she won't like know him, I'm like not looking forward to her looking into it all herself and being like, oh, they said this, they said this. Because, you know, she's she'll never know him herself. So she'll just know like what people tell her and like what we tell her. So that's hard, and I'm not exactly looking forward to those days of her doing her own investigating. I know she will, but that's that part's scary. When Sheriff Atkins made his statement, I think there were officers who knew Kevin had not shot at the deputies. I don't think Sheriff Atkins, however, yet knew. But he didn't correct it immediately. It, he did not, and he should have. Three of the four rounds were back to front, meaning three of the four shots hit Kevin as he was running away. A fourth shot hit him in the chest after he sat up with his camera in hand, or rather with his phone in hand, using it as a camera. When excessive or deadly force is used by the police, there's often an imbalance because police are both part of the story and also the gatekeepers of the information about that story. The police are suspects sitting at a computer, typing out their own narratives into the police report. When we started the reporting for this season, there was a lot of talk about excessive or deadly force used by police, a lot of really good reporting out there. But we still mostly rely on police to self-report when they shoot or kill someone. And if they don't accurately report it, then we might not know. So for the first episode of this season, we tried to do an analysis. Is what happened in Kevin Peterson's case unusual? If there had not been surveillance video, would we ever know what really happened? Is it common to find misleading narratives or errors of omission from police statements about excessive or deadly force? We started by going back and looking at some of the high-profile cases that you've probably already heard about. Local police have released a nearly blank incident report stemming from the night Breonna Taylor was fatally shot in her own apartment by police. The incident report filed on March 13, 2020 by the Louisville Metropolitan Police Department after Breonna Taylor's death states that there was no forced entry and no injuries. Both things we now know are not true. Officers used a battering ram to break down the door, and Breonna Taylor was shot eight times and killed. In initial statements to the press, the department told media there was no video of the incident because those officers were not wearing body cameras. But that's not true either, 
and the footage has since been made public. In the Walter Scott case in South Carolina. Officer Slager, seen here being debriefed moments after the incident, told police dispatchers Scott grabbed for his taser. He grabbed my taser. The official statement from North Charleston Police was that Walter Scott was struggling with a police officer when he grabbed the officer's taser and was trying to use it against the officer when he opened fire and killed him. But Faden Santana, the man who filmed the shooting with his cell phone, tells NBC News Scott did not. No, he never grabbed the taser of the police. He never grabbed the taser. Video later showed that Scott was running away. In Chicago, when Laquan McDonald was shot and killed, initial statements by the police union were that the teenager was approaching officers with a knife in his hand, ignoring calls to drop it. A police spokesman claimed that McDonald had been crazed and lunged at police before the officer opened fire in self-defense. But the video shows none of that, happened. that he was walking away. In another Chicago case, 13-year-old Adam Toledo was shot and killed while his hands were up and he was standing between a small opening and a fence. But the initial press release said he was armed and it didn't mention his age. We can also pinpoint these errors in cases you may not have heard about. When Donovan Lynch was killed by police in Virginia Beach, the initial press release combined three separate killings to make it appear that there was a mass shooting. But actually, it was three separate events, and Lynch was not a suspect in any of those shootings. In fact, despite the officer's reports that Lynch had a gun, there's no evidence that he did. 17-year-old John Albers, he was fatally shot by an Overland Park police officer while he was backing a car out of his family's garage. Initially, the narrative was that the officer fired the 13 rounds because he was behind the vehicle and feared being run over. But we now know the back window of the vehicle was intact. It was the passenger window that was shot out. Video shows the officer failed to identify himself or instruct the teen to stop, and he pulled out his weapon before the garage door was even fully open. Then there's this case in December of 2015. Footage of an officer-involved shooting was sparking protests in Los Angeles after Nicholas Robertson was shot while crawling away from police. And then a video emerged quelling those protests. It showed Robertson with a gun in his hand, firing it into the air. But the video, which was released in violation of the LAPD's protocol, was not the whole story. Two years later, a new video came to light, showing that Robertson was not firing the gun when he was shot. A jury later awarded his family $3.6 million. In April of 2018, a bipolar man was scaring people on the streets of Crown Heights, going up to people and pointing an object at them. The NYPD responded with 10 rounds, shooting Sahid Vassal dead. The initial press release said that several people had called 911 to say that Vassal was pointing a silver firearm at people. However, when the tapes emerged, it was clear that wasn't true. One person even stated clearly on a 911 call, quote, it's not a gun. There's also Mario Gonzalez. Alameda police gave a very brief statement after Gonzalez was killed in April of 2021, saying that officers attempted to detain him and a physical altercation ensued. 
At the time, they said Gonzalez had a medical emergency and officers immediately began life-saving measures, that he was transported to the hospital where he later died. What really happened? Oh my gosh. We're gonna take care of you, okay? What really happened is that officers pinned him down for four minutes while he struggled to breathe. The interim police chief later called the video troubling. Using medical emergency to distract from what really happened is something that we've seen before. Police officers used it to describe George Floyd's death, something a jury later called murder. But initially, police said it was a medical incident during a police interaction, saying Floyd suffered a medical distress during his arrest. They also failed to mention in that initial release that Officer Derek Chauvin kneeled on Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes and only got up after paramedics asked him to. Just days after Floyd's death, the Minneapolis police continued to make arrests using violence and then fudge it on public documents. For example, police claimed that there was no one injured when they arrested a protester named Jaleel Stallings. They accused Stallings of shooting at officers, but a judge later acquitted Stallings of any wrongdoing, and medical records show that his eye socket was fractured by police who beat him during his arrest. Protesters marching on Floyd's behalf in other cities faced similar treatment. In Buffalo, New York, video shows police lied when they said a 75-year-old protester tripped and fell, leading to a pretty bad head wound. In fact, police pushed him. Our research of all of these initial press statements led us to more than a dozen examples of misdirection, misinformation, spin, or flat-out inaccuracies. More than half of the victims were Black, and all but three were minorities. In one case, in King County, Washington, home to Seattle, the sheriff's office put out a press release about a stolen truck with a four-year-old Black poodle inside of it. The release even tells the public the poodle's name, Monkey. It did not mention the name, Anthony Chilcott, the driver of the truck who was shot and killed by police during this incident. Chilcott had multiple gunshot wounds to his head, but those aren't mentioned either. It does say, however, that Monkey was uninjured. Chilcott's death was not mentioned until the end of the press release. The press release gave more attention to the poodle and named the poodle than it did to the fact that a man had been killed by police after an unnecessary chase. That's Deborah Jacobs. She was formerly in charge of the King County Office of Law Enforcement Oversight, and she's since taken on the issue of accountability in police press releases. Those are the kind of things that got me interested because I know a lot of impacted families and I know how much it matters to them, no matter what culture they're a part of, how their loved one is portrayed. And in their rush to defend themselves, the police have tried to paint a picture of people that will justify their actions. Does it impact the outcomes of some of these cases, do you think? The, the fact that in more of these high-profile cases than not, there are no criminal convictions? 
I do think it impacts public opinion and it sort of ties into confirmation bias. So this would be particular to African-American people and other people of color. For Deborah, it all started with the case of a young man named Tommy Lay. Tommy Lay was shot three times and died after officers say he failed to comply with their orders. The initial story deputies told about Tommy Lay was that he was chasing a neighbor with a knife and that when police arrived at the scene, Lay was stabbing at the neighbor's front door, shouting that he was the creator. Deputies fired tasers but switched to guns when the taser was ineffective. But Lay did not have a knife. He had a plastic papermate pen. It very quickly painted a picture of Tommy Lay that was, number one, inaccurate, and number two, not positive. Tommy Lay's family are immigrants from Vietnam, and the painting of their son as a knife-wielding, muttering person was terribly devastating to them. Uh, To say it added insult to injury doesn't even begin to describe it because it wasn't just injury, it was death, and it wasn't just insult, it was soul-destroying for them from a cultural standpoint. I get a call. Would I meet with the family? Lay family attorney Jeff Kempish told me that the initial narrative by deputies took such a stronghold that even he, a lawyer who was going to represent the family, went in thinking... That he was the drug-crazed gangbanger attacking the police. But Kampish says he quickly learned the law enforcement narrative was flawed. I was told that Tommy was such a sweet young man that they couldn't imagine that he would have talked to police with a knife. Just not possible. And I listened and I said, well, what did he do in his spare time? And they told me that he liked to read books and play chess. I said, okay, show me his bedroom. So I go in the bedroom cynical at this history they gave me, or description. And next to his bed is a little red backpack. And I zip it open, and inside is a small box chess set with the the surface almost worn out. And in it are the chess pieces. And I think, hmm. And then I look at the little table by the bed. There's two books on it. The first one is checked out to Tommy. It's The Count of Monte Cristo by Dumas. If you've read it, it's brilliant, but it's hard to read. It's not lightly read. And next to it is a copy of Goethe's Faust with Tommy's notes in it. This young man is reading Dumas and Goethe. And so I'm thinking... Maybe not a gangbanger. Campiche, who is a former district attorney himself, goes to the medical examiner's office. And shortly after he walks in, a clerk comes up to him. Hands me the autopsy report, and he says, it's all bullshit. And I said, I pardon me? What's bullshit? What the sheriffs say. It's bullshit. They shot him in the back. And so I opened the autopsy report, Right there, cause of death, handgun wound to the back. I thought, I must have not read that police report right. I must have, how could I have missed that? You know, if it's a self-defense shooting, we couldn't have shot him in the back. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm scratching. I think maybe it's the wrong case, and I'm I'm just dumbfounded. Of course, it's not the wrong case. Tommy Lay was shot once in the hand and twice in the back. He was not charging deputies, but that too was omitted from the police report. No mention that he shot in the back. What was in the report is a note. Report is a little note written by a sergeant who says, arrived at the scene to find the deputies standing around the suspect. And I asked them, because he'd heard on the radio that there was a knife, did you get the knife? The deputies told him there was no knife, just an ink pen. And Jeff Campiche and I are sitting in his office in Seattle when he tells me this story. I was shocked by this. He turns to his desk drawer and opens it and pulls out a black papermate pen. Just like this? That's the brand. That's exactly the pen. But they still made the narrative to the press that he was armed with a knife. And then they sort of changed it to a, uh, a knife or a sharp object. In the use of force review a year later, they concluded it was okay to shoot and kill this boy because he was holding this ink pen. Deadly ink pen. If you ask the King County Sheriff's Office, a number of deputies injured with a plastic ink pen, the only danger they have from an ink pen is people like you and me writing things. One year after the shooting, after we've had our press conference that shows that he was shot in the back. Can we talk about the shot in the back for a second? You explained yeah. it to me. You explained how the bullet, the first bullet, left his body, but not how the second one didn't. Yes, and I have left that out so far because that wasn't published. We held on to that, but it goes like this. He was shot in the back twice with a handgun. The first bullet penetrated the uh, front of his body anterior and came out. The second bullet hit nothing hard, just organs, but stopped and you could see it like a button in his chest, a silver button, flat. That is called a short bullet because it would have kept going but for the fact that it hit something hard and stopped. A short bullet means the person was shot leaning against the wall, but in this case, on his face, down, on the street, the officer shot him in the back while he was laying down. And it stopped. King County issued something called a use of force review which is a departmentally wide review of the shooting that concluded that the officers acted well within the scope of the standing orders in King County. Did it acknowledge he was shot in the back? No, they forgot to put that in there. In the, in the use of force report? Right, signed by the sheriff and everybody else of authority in the department. Go ahead, introduce yourself. I'm Sheriff John Urquhart, retired. We'll be right back. We couldn't make this podcast without the work of some pretty amazing journalists at the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communications. To support their work, visit www.breckner.org and click Give. Like what you're hearing so far? Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends. 
If you do, and you tag us on social media, you could win some swag. And who doesn't love swag? In all seriousness, sharing good journalism helps support good journalism, and it's essential to the work that we continue to do. So thank you. Urquhart, that's how you say it? Yep. Awesome. Thanks so much for talking to me on such short notice. John Urquhart was the King County Sheriff when Tommy Lay was shot and killed. What do you think happened? I've been a reporter long enough to know that you don't always know everything the, the moment that press release is written. But what what happened? It used to be when I would talk to a news reporter in particular, he says, what's your deadline? Uh, Got to have it by five o'clock. He goes on to explain that the changes to the media industry over the last 15 years, the emphasis on 24-7 news, has put a tremendous pressure on public information officers. There's no deadlines. You know, everybody, it's cutthroat. They, they want that information. Now they just beat a PIO up to get that information and to get it now. Well, that puts a lot of pressure on us to get that information out sooner, before we've really had a chance to dig in and figure out what's going on. That's part of the problem. Going back to Tommy Lay, the PIO at the time. PIO is an acronym for Public Information Officer. Number one was a fill-in, not his main job, because we only have one PIO in the sheriff's office because they won't fund the office like they should. So there was only one. She was on vacation. He was a fill-in, very inexperienced. Uh, as part of it, was given false information, not false, incorrect information from the detectives on the scene, incorrect. So in an effort to get information out, he put that out there. It wasn't correct. And he didn't find out, we didn't find out, especially since he was a fill-in until a couple or three days later, that there was no knife involved when he was shot. Although Urquhart was quick to blame the 24-7 news cycle for this mistake, a pressure that I'm not dismissing as a real factor here, there is definitely more at play. Do you really think that it's never the case that the, the police get defensive about their actions? We're speaking globally about police departments and information that comes out. Clearly, that's absolutely the case. Absolutely the case. That was the case, frankly, until I became the PIL. I was able to change that culture in the sheriff's office, you know, they're defensive because they think they're going to get beat up on. Yeah, they're going to get beat up on sometimes. Most of the time, it's deserved. Not always, but most of the time. But if you can put the facts out there, if you can be open and honest, then, you know, you're going to be much better off in the short run and in the long run. Let's back up. Because Urquhart himself spent time as a PIO before he was elected sheriff. And his own story of how he came into that position is relevant to our research. I spent many years as an undercover vice narcotics detective, but almost all street work. I never really had an administrative job, but working those types of jobs that I did have, it's almost always swing shift or graveyard. I got older and older, and my wife got more and more upset with me for not being home at night. By then, we had two daughters. And she said, you know, hey, get the hell off that shift and get a day shift job. So when he was recruited to apply for the PIO job, it seemed like a nice fit. I figured, what the hell, I'll give it a try. So then I'm home every day, in theory, at five o'clock, and that goes on for about 30 days. And my wife says, get the hell out of here. I don't like having you home every night. All kidding aside, he kept the job for 12 years. Did you feel like when you went into that job that you were adequately trained to... Oh. Talk to the public? No, there was no training whatsoever. My predecessor, 
the person I replaced hated the job, hated talking to the press, hated the hours, all of that. And she gave me day and a half, two, three days training. And that was it. Do you feel like that's right? Well, with me, I didn't really need any more training because I came in with the right attitude. I respected reporters. I respected the job they did. For the most part, they have a four-year degree. They're intelligent. They're trying to do the right thing. Again, for the most part, most cops don't feel that way. Most police officers hate the press. Rightly or wrongly, they hate the press. And I think it's because of the criticism. They take the criticism that the press gives of the police very, very personal. I would go to a scene, maybe a homicide or car accident, and another officer would say, oh, watch out, the press is here, and keep them as far away as we can. And I, you know, I never had that attitude going in at all. The primary job is not to make the department look good. That's one of the jobs, probably. The primary job is to facilitate information from the government, in this case, the police department, facilitate information to the press. Uh, and that's relatively easy to do. doesn't take a whole lot of training, frankly. Now, the training that would come in are rules and regulations about re- releasing information, public disclosure, how to talk to the press, how not to piss them off, those types of things. From a straight training aspect, there's not a whole lot that goes into it. Maybe it's not training in the traditional sense, but maybe training almost in the way that you look at the job and the way that the job is viewed. Do you know what I mean? Not everybody goes into a job the way that you just described it. No, they don't. And what you're talking about, Sarah, is attitude. Yeah. Training the attitude in them if they don't have it already. When I would pick my replacement, I always make sure they had the right attitude about it. And if they did, I would drill it into them. And if that didn't work, bam, I wouldn't have them as a, as a public information officer, period. At the end of the day, it actually, it's more harmful to not understand how to do this job correctly. Oh, absolutely. It, it, because you're the face of the department. You're the face of the department. What you say ends up either on television or in print. And when that happens, it's there forever. It's exceedingly important to say the right thing. As we all know, cover-up is always worse than whatever you're trying to cover up. The truth, the facts at least, will always come out. I don't know if you how closely you followed some of these other high-profile cases where initial information was put out that doesn't match what we know now. I mean, obviously you don't have intimate knowledge of those like you do about what happened behind the scenes with Tommy Lay. It seems like that idea of misinformation is contributing to a lot of the distrust. The more that that happens, I think the worse this is going to get, not better. Do you think that's accurate? Absolutely. There's no question about it. A lot of times it's like a character assassination that we see in these higher profile cases that come Absolutely. out that make you kind of wonder. Yep, that's exactly right. And and one of them is uh, that they used to do on other, I've seen other PIOs do it, you shoot some guy. And even if it's a justified shooting, first thing they want to do is put out this guy's criminal history. What the hell does that have to do with the shooting? The shooting has to stand on its own, has to stand independently. You vilify the victim in a misguided instinct to protect your own. If it's a legal shooting, you shouldn't have to protect your own. The shooting itself, the facts of the shooting will do that. For what it's worth, Jeff Campiche told me this about John Urquhart's handling of Tommy Lay's case. I think John's telling what happened. I think that's true, that the main PR person was missing. 
but they didn't disclose the mistake. It was done by the press. And second, that's not the only part of the false narrative. He went and took responsibility for that. I admire him for that. Urquhart's not the villain here. Kimpish also told me that Urquhart went to the family and apologized. When I first reached out to Urquhart, he sent me an email response that was pretty, let's say, unconventional for a government official. So I asked him about it. You said in your email, I just think this is interesting, that you often tell members of the public you can't trust the government to always tell you the truth. Why do you say that? Because it's true. Government in general will always cover their ass. Always. You, know, you see it, and it's, it's not just the police department. They will always do that. That's just, that's the natural human thing to do, is to try to make excuses for bad behavior or make excuses for your mistakes. He went on to say that he thinks this is human tendency in many professions when a mistake is made, not just in his. Problem is with the government, you know, you're paying their salary. With police, they have the ability, the authority over life and death. So it's really super important. And the other thing I also add is you can't trust the institution, but you've got to figure out which individuals you can trust. And I tell them, you can trust me to always tell you the truth, not to lie, not to spin, not to cover up. You can trust me. But in general, don't trust government. The public's trust in government, especially in policing, has certainly diminished in the last decade. The high-profile cases of police misconduct have been polarizing and have rightfully led to calls for widespread reform, which in turn has caused many law enforcement officials to take a defensive stance. As Deborah Jacobs told me, many officers view the criticism as a misunderstanding of what they do. For the most part, I think police are pretty bad at PR, and they sort of culturally dig into this idea that nobody can understand them. And so some have turned to organizations that profit from controlling the messaging. Big PR machines, the kind that you would expect from corporate America. Our open records research found that several police departments say they have outside contracts related to PR, ranging from $3,000 to $200,000. Last year, the San Jose Mercury News reported that one firm has contracted with about 100 West Coast police agencies to create slick and well-produced videos after officer-involved shootings. They all follow the same formula and often are highly edited and produced with select portions of body camera footage and facts disseminated to the public within hours, setting the narrative early. A sheriff in Florida did something similar, spending money to produce an hour-long video that criticized reporters and activists who were questioning the death of an inmate in one of his jails. Also in Florida, the Sarasota Herald-Tribune reported that the PIO for the police department there was adding voiceover narration to body camera footage that they were releasing. The paper called it an odd play-by-play -play style of commentary so intrusive that it's difficult at times to hear the actual interaction between police and the suspects in the video. Similarly, in Utah, police released body camera footage with superimposed text on screen, and it turned out the text wasn't accurate. Oh, I think it's ridiculous. I hate it. You know, I've always said I will not spin uh, the sheriff's office. I will not spin the information I put out there. 
I talked to Deborah and John about this. Now, if the department can find somebody that has the experience and the attitude to come in and train from the outside to train their PILs on how to do the job right, there's no problem with that. But that's not image. That's not image makeover. That's not image control. That's just how to do the job correctly. What I would be supportive of is public money being invested to teach police how to be as transparent as possible and as receptive and to understand their role as servants to the public. That would solve their PR problems. As far as just looking good for the sake of looking good, that's money wasted as far as I'm concerned, because it's your actions that will determine how the public feels about you. Yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting like middle where you have to you have to spend money, right, on training, but like how much is too much money that you're spending that yeah. it becomes more That's like a exactly. PR. Yeah. When it morphs into image management or image control. That's just wrong. That's not the way that government should be spending taxpayer dollars, as far as I'm concerned. Just tell the truth. That's all you have to do. Tell the truth, be open, be honest, get the trust that way as best you possibly can. Be responsible. It sounds so simple, right? I thought it was simple. I thought it really was simple. There's an interesting middle ground to be found. On one hand, you don't really want no training for police PIOs, like Urquhart, who basically is self-taught. But you also probably don't feel comfortable seeing agencies spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on image consultants. Using public information requests, we asked around the country to some of the largest police departments, asking to see how much they spend on their public information office. It was hard to draw conclusions because police departments structure these departments differently. But there were some interesting nuggets of information that we found. For example, the average public relations budget was about $1.5 million. Some departments, like Columbus, Ohio, are spending as little as $100,000. Others, like the LAPD, they spend almost $10 million. Chicago has 78 people working on communications. In Minneapolis, there's just one. Minneapolis is actually an interesting place to stop and focus for a minute. It is, of course, where George Floyd was killed, and where we know of at least two press releases that were manipulated to try to cover up what happened. City council there temporarily moved the PIO from the police department to the city government, and reporters revolted, saying it became like a bad game of telephone, where it was impossible to get timely and reliable information. I actually have a little sympathy for public information officers. They have a hard job. That's Carolyn Carson. Carson is a former reporter turned PIO turned Kennesaw State University professor. And in 2016, she published research about government public relations officers. And many of them try very hard to do the right thing. And in many cases, they're prevented from doing the right thing because they work for politicians. (laughs) And politicians direct their movements and their policies. By the way, I have some sympathy, too. I do actually consider a number of police and government public information officers to be friends. I can also say that at least 50% of those that I've worked with over the years have been good people trying to do the right thing. Of course, there's always that tension, that underlying tension that I described when I talked to Urquhart. That 
continuous tension, a little bit of love, a little bit of hate, you know, or like always trying to work it out a little bit. Really, so, it's usually a hate hate relationship, though, in most cases. Really? Not much love I, there. I feel like it depends. It's like dependent on the person. True. Exactly. Um, right. And the reporter, too. Like, make no mm-hmm. mistake, some of them can be assholes. Anyway, back to Carson and her research. Sometimes they do things that are not quite right because uh, they've been told to do it by their bosses. Other times they do things that are not the best because uh, they don't know any better. And sometimes they do things because they're political hacks and and are not trained uh, public relations professionals, more so than any other segment of the public information officer cohorts. A lot of police POs are former foot soldiers, so to speak. Uh, So their loyalty is not to public information. Their loyalty is to, uh, you know, whatever they're told to do. And sometimes they're not necessarily told to do the right thing. Like Urquhart, Carson found that part of the problem does lie with the media, especially when it comes to local news stories. It's not just the 24-7 demand for content. She also pointed out that shrinking newsrooms leave reporters desperate for easy information. There are fewer reporters than ever, and the reporters who are left have more and more responsibility than ever before. So they have come to have to rely on PR people, and particularly government public information officers, to help them get the information they need. And the PIOs know this and know that they're filling a very vital role in helping reporters do their jobs. So there is a very symbiotic relationship between reporters and public information officers. Now, the good ones don't take advantage of that. But the crux of her research focuses on the tightening of access. Her research actually started from surveys asking reporters a simple question. What's the biggest barrier to getting information? And from there, she talked to PIOs, first in government agencies across the board, and then specific to law enforcement agencies. Probably not surprisingly, she found that even in well-staffed news markets, reporters who cover crime struggle to find information beyond the tightly controlled message that's put out by police PIOs. 10, 15 years ago, a reporter would show up at a crime scene and the first officer on the scene would come out and tell them what he saw and what he's going to put in the crime incident report. A little later, the detective who was in charge would also come out and talk to you and tell you what they knew so far. Then it started to develop, especially once everybody started hiring PIOs, that nobody would come to the tape. You had to wait till the PIO showed up, and the PIO would go behind the tape and interview these people and then come out and tell you what was going on. I think our knowledge of crimes has changed dramatically because of police public information officers. It dilutes the, the quality of the reporting, but I think that's somewhat intentional on the part of the police department, right? And the worst part about it to me is that we don't get to hear the voice of the officers involved. And if you ask to talk to the detective who's in charge of the investigation, nine out of 10 times, you're denied. They won't let you talk to the investigator. The only person that you can talk to is the PIO. And if you get to talk to anybody else in the department, it's the chief who usually has no clue as to what happened. 
you rarely get to hear the voice of the people who are actually doing the work. And that to me is a shame. And it's also bad for the public because they don't see the humanity of the officers. And a lot of the hostility that the public has toward police officers stems from that, this lack of a human face on the officers out there because we never see them on TV talking about their work and what they do. Carson found that reporters in southern states were particularly affected by a culture of secrecy. But across the board, she found that 75% of law enforcement PIOs felt it necessary to supervise or monitor the interviews that police officers give to reporters. One of the things we discovered in our research was some instructional manuals that basically tells government public information officers that they needed to control their employees and and gag them and make sure that nobody talks to the media without their permission and that they be present for any interviews that they conduct and interrupt them if they start straying from the official message of the department. The Breckner Center, which produces this podcast, also published research on this topic in 2021, finding that not only are many police departments gagging the rank-and-file police officers, but they're doing it unconstitutionally. Government employees have a right to free speech under the First Amendment, but of the nearly 70 department policies that the research team obtained, Most were constitutionally suspect. The research found that New York City, with the nation's largest police force, also has one of the most controlling media policies. So does Phoenix, St. Louis, Greenville, South Carolina, Memphis, Seattle, and Broward County, Florida. There were some policies that looked okay on paper, but officers still feared retaliation. There are numerous examples around the country of police officers who spoke out about injustices who were then ostracized and bullied for it. We'll hear from one of those whistleblowers next episode, and she says there's a cultural problem that clearly exists, even when there isn't an obvious policy problem on paper. Before George Floyd's murder, police sources were given an extra level of credence in newsrooms. It was generally accepted that if police said it, then it was true. But Floyd's death made reporters and editors revisit that kind of thinking. And when scrutinized the same way that other sources are scrutinized, reporters found that police were not always telling the truth about what happened. It remains true that fact-checking the police is a difficult task to do, especially on deadline. Law enforcement enjoys a protection, a veil of secrecy that is recognized as an important tool in their work. If every part of the investigative process was open from the start, it would be harder to catch the bad guys. Also, there's this. Police are allowed to lie in certain circumstances. And as Deborah Jacobs suggested, The normalization of being allowed to lie in certain circumstances, I think probably contributes, but mostly let's not kid ourselves. It's defensiveness, that's it. They wanna look good and they wanna make sure their people don't get in trouble. It's a cultural shift that should be addressed because in the nearly 15 cases that we talked about in this episode, there were no real consequences for police putting out blatantly false narratives. And those are just the cases that we know about. 
There's no consequences. There's very little police accountability. This is Why Don't We Know. The following police departments declined to comment for this episode, most of them citing pending criminal or civil cases related to our reporting. The Clark County Sheriff's Office in Washington State, the Louisville Metropolitan Police Department, the North Charleston Police Department, Chicago Police, Virginia Beach Police, Overland Park Police, the LA County Sheriff's Office, the NYPD, the Alameda Police Department, Minneapolis Police, and the King County Sheriff's Office. This episode was written and produced by me, Sarah Gannam. The associate producer is Thomas Holton. Our research consultant is Brittany Suzanne. Additional research and reporting was done by Kaylee Whitten, Vivian Ionesco, Ariana Asperu, Jessica Turkovich, Trey Ecker, and Brett Posner-Ferdman. Open records requests were filed by Nanfumo Manaba, Alexandra Harris, and Brittany Suzanne. Archival sound was collected by Thomas Holton and Trey Ecker. This episode was edited by Thomas Holton, Amy Fu, and James Sullivan at WUFT in Gainesville, Florida. The theme music for Why Don't We Know was composed by Pete Redman. Audio mixing was done by James Sullivan. Why Don't We Know is a production of the Breckner Center for Freedom of Information at the University of Florida. For more information, please visit our website at www.whydontweknow.org.